Hello and welcome to the Real Maxime podcast. I'm Maxime, your host. I'm an economist, former tech entrepreneur, hedge fund founder, and private investor. As I have surveyed the on-chain lending ecosystem and spoken with many of its leaders, one thing has become abundantly clear to me. Before a vibrant credit ecosystem can emerge, we need to implement well-designed primitives and price discovery mechanisms for tokenized money markets. After all, if we do not know the price of institutional liquidity, how can we price borrower risk in excessive wholesale funding? Robert Alcourt, co-founder and CEO of Clearpool Finance, is busy building just that, a highly innovative and composable protocol that enables borrowers to raise unsecured liquidity directly from DeFi markets, including a fully permissioned platform that meets the compliance needs for wholesale borrowing and lending of digital assets by institutional market participants. Rob and his co-founder, Alessio Quaglini, are ex-colleagues from First Abu Dhabi Bank, where they worked together in Hong Kong. In 2018, Alessio left the bank to establish Hex Trust, a digital asset custodian, and they teamed up in 2021 to address a glaring gap in the DeFi lending market. Their goal was to solve the problem of over-collateralization, one of the most significant problems facing DeFi borrowers, while at the same time building a product that would allow lenders to manage risk effectively. Amazingly, Rob did not start his career in capital markets or software, but he learned early on the importance of rising up to challenges and overcoming them through personal growth. When his father, a successful interpreter, tragically passed away from cancer, Rob had to take over the reins of the family business at the age of 21. Thrown into a position of utmost responsibility towards his family and preserving his father's legacy, he stepped up, learned the ropes, and won the trust of his colleagues who had been with the firm for many years. He repeated the feat with making his first foray into the world of inter-dealer brokerage at Tradition and later as head of Asia-Pacific repo trading at First Abu Dhabi Bank, where he built the sales and trading desk from the ground up into a multi-billion dollar franchise. He has held positions in assets and liability management, fixed income money market sales, as well as working as a senior broker in fixed income markets. Rob is a CFA charter holder and a holder of MIT's FinTech Certificate in Future Commerce. I hope you enjoy your conversation. I grew up in Nottingham in England. So I lived there for the first 30 years of my life. As a kid, I was a very active kid. So um, I was always playing sports. Main sports for me were football and then later on in my teenage years, basketball. Yeah, that was my passion. I used to play a lot of sport, many different sports. So you could always find me either with a ball or a racket or a bat in my hand. And then through school, I was kind of, I guess, an average student. School for me was kind of a place I didn't take it too seriously. But on completing sort of secondary school in the UK, I went to college to do a business, business studies course. But I quickly dropped out. I had this burning desire to get out into the world and start working. So I actually dropped out of college fairly early. And yeah, went into the, the real world very early on at the age of around 17. One thing I can relate to in what you said is this really, really strong desire and yearning to get into the real world, to actually start seeing a direct correlation between the effort and the intellect that I put in into something and seeing materialize it outside of the utopia of school. And I found that when I was growing up and going through high school, a lot of my classmates didn't struggle with that. They were very focused. They had a plan. They knew which boxes they needed to check in order to get to the next stage, the next level, 
and ultimately the kinds of jobs that they wanted, which creates an expectation that you need to know ahead of time what you're going to be when you grow up. And to be honest, I did not know that. So I'm curious, did you have a good sense of what you wanted to do at that age when you start hitting the real world at 17? Kind of, yeah. So growing up, my father was an entrepreneur. He had several businesses as we were growing up as kids. And I guess like a lot of a lot of other young children, you want to be like your dad, all right? And I looked up to him and he was always out doing these deals and running multiple businesses. So I wouldn't say I knew exactly what I wanted to do, but I kind of wanted to do that. I wanted to get out, get experience and probably end up running my own business. That was really the desire that I had, but I wanted to learn in the real world. I wanted to do what he was doing. And in hindsight, it was a really good decision for me. I started working at a company. I stayed there for about two, two and a half years. But then actually my father asked me to come and join him, one of his main businesses, which was growing. He needed more people. He'd seen me sort of progress at this other company. And I left that company and joined my father in this business. I said in hindsight, it was a good decision, not only because I think I had great early experience, but a couple of years later, he passed away with cancer. And by that stage, I was, I think, around 21 years old. I had then take that business on. So those two years that I had with him running the business together, very valuable indeed, and set me up very well to be able to continue that business from that point onwards. So this must have been a very, very important moment in your own development if I may assume here, where you're thrust into the situation, obviously ex-ante couldn't have fathomed the outcome, but now under a position of extreme responsibility at a very young age. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. Of course, it was a very difficult moment for me and the rest of the family, but I knew that this was something that I had to do. And it lit a fire inside me, and that has continued to this day. And I think it really was a defining moment in my life and in my career. When you say you love basketball, does this translate into a highly competitive nature? Or was this just the enjoyment of being out there with your friends? Did you play tournaments or was this just going out and shooting hoops? A bit of both. So football, I played all my life and I used to play for several different teams all at the same time. So, you know, this would have me playing competitive football midweek and on Saturday and on Sunday all for different teams. Basketball was the same. I also was part of a team. I think I'm a competitive person, not overly competitive, but definitely I like to win. So I think those early days of playing team sports, mainly for me, were also quite sort of influential in making me the person that I am. Talk to me a little bit about the first couple of years of being in the seat of taking over your father's business. And particularly, what I'm interested in is the formation over the years of someone's professional DNA and how it develops over time. Because as it relates to the entrepreneurial journey, it's not necessarily an overnight moment, but some things prepare you for the challenges, the ups and downs, the notion that the buck is going to stop with you. If you could give us a little bit of color about being in that seat at a young age and trying to figure out how to run the business. Yeah, so everyone is watching you and there's a lot of expectation. This was a relatively sort of large business on the scale of sort of SMEs, if you like. There was our employees, some of them a lot older than me. I'd been working with them for two years, so we had that relationship. 
but now I was in the hot seat and, and of course there's expectations. So it was kind of basically like being thrown in at the deep end and you either sink or swim. And for me, as I said, that fire, it lit that fire and there was no way that I was going to let this business fail. And so it did take some working out, although I, you know we'd worked together for a couple of years. There were things that we hadn't done together. There were parts of the business that I wasn't already aware of. I did have the, the help of some of my family. My mum and my brother were involved. But ultimately, I really had to, had to kind of figure it out myself. And so I think really the main thing looking back on that, I just remember kind of having this mindset where there was no way that I was going to let this fail. And whatever I had to do to make it work, I would do it. And I suppose looking back on the career that I had after that, uh, which we can go into, I think that helped massively because I did change careers around the age of 30. I went into finance and within finance, I did several different things. Um, and each time was a little bit being sort of thrown in at the deep end. So I think looking back at that moment, again, in, in hindsight, was actually very helpful as things move forward. I can imagine. And how much experience did you have by the time you started Clearpool? Well, so quite a lot. I mean, obviously, I'm quite diversified as well. So I spent basically my 20s running that business. This was a retail consumer-facing business in, back in the UK. At the age of 30, I moved to Dubai. I basically decided that it was time for me to move on. I think I'd done well, and I think my dad would have been proud of what I'd done. But for me, I felt like there was a lot out there, and, and I wanted to get out and see what else I could do. And that's how I got into finance. This is another one of those moments where I was kind of thrown into the deep end. You know, there was a lot of expectation at that time. I'd had a huge, well, a very steep learning curve back in London. And now it was time to go and see if I could actually do it. And let's say that I did and became very, very successful as a broker. I did that for about five years. I'd actually moved into banking. So I joined the bank in 2014, initially on the client facing side, again, in fixed income. I then went through periods in asset and liability management, liquidity management, money markets, and ultimately I finished up as a repo trader in a collateral management role. That was a business that I built from the ground up for the bank in Asia. So by this time, I found myself in Hong Kong building the repo business for the bank in Asia. And that eventually took me to Singapore. That experience of all of those different roles Almost like the perfect path, if you like, to lead me to this role of building one in Clearpool. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the reason I'm focused on this as also an investor is if you look at the year of easy money of the last decade, really, with an overemphasis on trying to ship technology, and if you build it, they will come, and a high premium accruing to the engineering side at a very young age, funding founders that have or had little experience with market conditions such as the one we've had in the last 18 now going on longer. And so having gone through cycles, having gone through your own idiosyncratic career cycles, market cycles, offers you a very different perspective. As we speak, young founders today are going through a lot of turmoil. If you started a business in the past 12 months, the market conditions have shifted quite drastically. And I'm sure it impacts someone like yourself as much as those teams. But you do have 
not only pattern recognition, but reference points. And even though the storyline is going to be slightly different, you have lived through a wide variety of different moments and regimes. And I think it's important. It's important when looking at a business and understanding what makes the founder or the founding team resilient and robust and diversified to the regimes that the business is going to traverse. So let's talk about Clearpool and how you get started. Did you have any co-founders? How did the group and idea come together? Sure. So yeah, we there's three co-founders and uh, myself, Alessio Paulini and uh, Jacob Kombishler. So Alessio and I are actually colleagues, uh, ex-colleagues from the banking days. So back in sort of 2015, I think just as I'd finished the CFA, I knew about Bitcoin. So I looked into blockchain and I thought this could be technology that could actually improve the rest of the stack. And that was what was uh, really kind of interesting to me. So I did a course at MIT, Future Commerce FinTech course at MIT, which was really great. And I learned a lot more about blockchain doing that. And then I found myself in, in Hong Kong and Alessio was one of the guys that was working at the bank, but, but the only one that also had this interest in blockchain and Bitcoin. So him and I immediately sort of hit it off. And uh, this, so this was, I think, 2016. And then a couple of years later, he left the bank in 2018 to, to found um, Hex Trust, which is a digital asset custodian. And then it was sort of shortly after that, Alessio and I came up with the idea uh, for Clearport. So you know, him and I were talking about DeFi and yeah, this idea sort of introduce unsecured or uncollateralized lending into the DeFi space, you know, really interested as it was obviously a very familiar concept to us with our backgrounds in banking. He obviously was at X Trust then, but, but we decided that we would write a white paper on this and, and get some feedback. The feedback went very, very well. And shortly after that, you know, we jumped into a seed round. And at that point, just after the seed round, we brought Jacob in as the third co-founder. Jacob's background is, is in sort of startups. He launched many startups for a company called Rocket Internet, and then became an early member of the team that was doing Food Panda, which is a food delivery service in Hong Kong. And then he moved into fintech and was doing sort of alternative lending for a sort of neobank in Southeast Asia. And so he was somebody that we knew and we thought would fit very well in, into this venture. And also he, he sort of just started you know, really getting into DeFi. And, and I think you know, as soon as we spoke to him, he didn't take much persuade. What was the initial thesis of Clearpool? If you think in terms of a standardized framework to look at how to articulate the value proposition, the purpose, the problem you observe, what solution you brought to this problem, and what do you anticipate at the time the market size opportunity to be? So I think one of the problems that we identified in DeFi was that there was a growing number of institutions operating in that space that wanted access to liquidity, but didn't have many options. And the options that they did have were not very efficient uses of capital, essentially the sort of over-collateralized models that were early DeFi pioneers, which are great. And we're actually also, those projects were kind of inspirational to us. But having said that, you know, we identified there was this, this kind of gap. There was nobody really building back then. There was, there was literally no way of borrowing unsecured in a more sort of like decentralized manner. So that was the kind of problem that we were looking to solve. And then beyond that, we had this vision actually of, in the future, of all debt eventually originating on chain. So if we could build the rails now that would solve the problem for these guys that are already operating this space, then we would be sort of very early pioneers ourselves in this uncollateralized, unsecured lending in DeFi. So um, so obviously we had to start with the demand that was there at the time, which was mainly from you know, high-frequency trading firms and, and market makers and hedge funds in the space. But we didn't want to just solve the problem for the borrowers because the way to do that really, the only way you can do it is by obviously introducing 
counterparty risk, which you don't have the other sort of over-collateralized DeFi protocols. But this really has to be done in order to do it under a collateralized way. But we didn't want to just solve that problem for, for borrowers. We wanted to make sure that, that we built something that would give lenders the ability to manage that risk. You know, they're taking on counterparty risk, and we wanted to make sure that we built something that gave them the tools and the opportunity to monitor and manage that risk effectively. And that was really very important to us in those early days as we were designing the protocol to make sure that we built something that, that did that. Well, one thing that stands out in all our conversations with respect to your approach is that you've had, whether it was opportunistic at the time because there was a need to fulfill when it came to trading balance sheets, for example, but you have focused on the foundational layer of fixed income, which is money markets, really. It's establishing mechanisms and the rails, as you've alluded to, but in a way that is ultimately interoperable, programmable, and composable in order to achieve this base layer of how the cost of money is being traded and interacted with in a marketplace to fulfill capital needs. And I think that's a little bit different than, than other players in the space, because there's been an, an overemphasis on wanting to bring what is referred to as RWAs, not risk-weighted assets, but real-world assets. And I think that it is very important, and that's an opinion that I have, and I think we share this, that the first step is to create a vibrant environment and demonstrate the superiority of the technology to achieve results that are tied to the efficiency of the technology first and demonstrate that before you start moving into the upper layers of the credit spectrum and before you start moving out the curve in terms of credit risk as well. So I think we're going to talk about this in more detail when we go through the business, but I think that's a differentiator. And as I've surveyed this space and I've looked at the different players in the space, Clearpool and your team have a distinctly different take on the problem. When you say you jumped into a seed round and the white paper was well received, what was the climate at the time? And I think for listeners, it's very important to set the context because we are now in a very, very difficult environment for existing startups to raise capital and certainly for a new idea to get funded. And there are different dynamics, obviously, whether you're already up and running or you have a brand de novo idea. What was the climate at the time? How did you go about pitching the project? What were the main objections and obstacles to raising capital? So the climate originally was quite good. So we started having those conversations around Q1 of 2021, and things, the market was in good shape. And we had a very unique, innovative idea. So as we started to have those conversations, get feedback, maybe you know, start to speak to investors and try to get some soft interest, that actually went very well. And we generated a lot and we were able to do a seed round um, very quickly. And that just propelled us really, you know, allowed us to hire a little bit more and to accelerate the process. And you know, we were able to attract some really big and well-respected investors into that round. Alessio had already built Hex Trust and he had many investors in Hex that he was able to introduce us to. But there were still you know, investors on our wish list that we, we didn't know. So you know, it can be challenging to, to get in front of the right people. And luckily, you know, we also had some advisors that helped us with introductions. Pitching probably three or four times a day is, is obviously tiring and challenging, but I've actually you know, looked back at that and, and really enjoyed it. Again, looking back, one of the challenges was really sort of polishing the pitch. We knew that we had a good product, but it's not the easiest thing 
to explain. You know, that was something that was new to me, obviously, not, not something that I'd done previously you know, my sort of banking days or before that, that Jacob had. So he was actually very influential at, at that time. Did it take a little bit of an adjustment for you to get into this mode of having to convey the concepts in a short amount of time, hitting all the key points, explaining to people what you were trying to solve and why you guys were the best guys to implement that? Did you have to switch your mindset? Yeah, definitely. Like I said, you know, this is not something that you know, I'd done a lot previously. Thankfully, Jacob had. And he was able to, to help immensely. But in a way, it brought me back a little bit to sort of management meetings at the bank, you know, having to sit uh, in a boardroom and you have your say and your time to present, you know, the performance of the past week or, or whatever. So, but it, there is still some adjustment to be made. And I think that's, it's an important part of it, right? It's something that we actually spent a lot of time practicing. Two of us would just jump on a Zoom call you know, in the morning and just practice the pitch. And it's something that really helped. What was your approach to building the team beyond the founders? First of all, how are the roles split between the founders at this stage of the game? And how different is this from when you got started? And then how did you build the team? Where did you find the talent? So in terms of the founders, obviously, Alessio and I were very much part of the design of the product initially. Alessio still is the CEO of Xtrust, but his input is, is really on, on sort of the product side and some business elements. Obviously, for myself, uh, CEO, I've got touch points you know, across the entire project. Jacob is mainly on the BD side. So again, he has a, a, a phenomenal background and experience in business development. So he kind of focuses more on, on the BD side these days. Um, in terms of building the team, so initially, right back at the beginning, I had earmarked somebody that I worked with uh, on one of my previous projects as a potential CTO or Clearpool. Unfortunately, he was not available, but he put me in touch with some of his sort of close friends who were sort of Ethereum developers. And these were the guys that we ended up bringing on board as the dev team. We did look around. We interviewed a number of people and a number of, of teams that could potentially fit. With this team, they knew immediately what we were trying to do. They, they got it straight away. They also showed a passion for it as well, which obviously is very important. And they had the right background. They, they built stuff. Their Solidity devs, they competed at a number of Ethereum hackathons they won awards at Waterloo, you know, back, back in the day. They were quite well known within those sort of early circles. That was fortunate. And then we didn't want to go on, on a crazy hiring spree. I think Jacob and I, um, in the early days, you know, felt like we had pretty much everything covered beyond the sort of development side. We did actually then hire somebody who, who now became our CTO. So one of those early developers took the CTO role. But Vadim was a guy that we hired before we launched. And he took on the CTO role and just kind of like allowed the developers you know, to do their thing. And then, yeah, eventually we got closer to sort of launching. We made a few more hires. We have another one of my ex-colleagues from banking days is our head of business development. And we have a CRO and a CMO and a couple of other people. Right now we have a team of about 12 full-time people, including the dev team. And so we're still quite lean. And, you know, that was the way we wanted to do it originally. And that's how we've tried to keep it. Of course, we needed to make hires here and there, as every growing business does. But for us, biggest advantage, honestly, is that we have a very close-knit team. Now, everybody communicates extremely well. You know, we're a remote team. We're all pretty much in different locations, but we, we are very close-knit. And that's been the most incredible thing for me to see to, and to participate in, you know, coming from that sort of background of, of sitting in a dealing room where you're basically shouting to each other across desks and monitors to now building this thing remotely and doing all our Zoom calls and you know, messages, but actually seeing how that can work and making that work and being so close-knit has been really, really an amazing thing to be a part of. 
it comes back to our discussion prior around experienced founders and founding teams. Many of the folks that you were able to bring on, you'd worked with or knew, and these are the relationships that you build over a career. And I know that you got started and the inception of the business was during a time of tremendous enthusiasm for DeFi, and you were able to take advantage of that favorable environment to get up and running. However, I believe that the wrong way to look at your story is to assume that it was easy, because you certainly make it sound like it was a just a steady process in executing on an idea and getting it funded, getting it built, and the way you describe how you assemble the team. It is never easy. But there are aspects that will de-risk the endeavor. And certainly, whether it's yourself or the group of co-founders had it in them, whether it's career experience, whether it's business acumen and relationships, and having managed through a wide variety of different environments, inevitably made it more straightforward. That's the read as an outsider. When one looks at your story, I'd say for listeners, the wrong takeaway would be, oh, it was a walk in the park. It never is. But I think this is where your background, starting all the way back when you were thrust in that situation, plays in. At least that's the takeaway here. So let's talk about Clearpool specifically, and let's dive into the details of the main offering as it stands today, and how are you structured to deliver value as you think about the roadmap on a going forward basis? Sure. So the product that we launched in March of last year is what we call permissionless pools. And so effectively what we have is institutional borrowers. So as I mentioned earlier, up to now, this has mainly been sort of trading firms, market makers, hedge fund types. They go through an onboarding process, like a KYC due diligence process. Part of that requires them to get a, a credit score from a third party. And this obviously is like a verification process and providing the, you know, the credit score is above a certain level. They can then launch a pool on the clear pool protocol. So they become what we would, let's say, refer to as a whitelisted borrower. Now, those pools are single borrower pools. So each borrower has their own pool. It's a smart contract. We're on, a, we've been on Ethereum and then launched a little bit on Polygon. Now, those pools, permissionless, we call them permissionless because anybody can lend to that pool, to that borrower. So effectively, you connect to the Clearpool app, you'll see a marketplace of borrowers. So if you want to kind of run a parallel, if you connect to, let's say, the Aave app, you'll see a marketplace of assets. On Clearpool, you see a marketplace of borrowers. And then you can effectively select which one of those borrowers you want to fund. So this is available to absolutely everybody. So then once liquidity starts to flow into, into a borrower pool from multiple lenders, the borrower can then draw down on that liquidity whenever they want. And the amount of liquidity that they utilize will determine their interest rate. And I think this is one of the biggest sort of innovative things that we brought to DeFi is the way that that works. So inside the pool, there is a utilization an interest rate curve. Now, this is quite a unique shaped curve. We use a cosine function, which gives this curve kind of like a U-shape. What that effectively does is it incentivizes the borrower to maintain utilization at a certain level. And that's the lowest interest rate on the curve, which you find at 85% utilization. So let's use a, an example. Let's say the borrower launches a pool. We have multiple lenders and $10 million um, gets deposited into that pool. The borrower most likely draw down $8.5 million this is where they will find the lowest interest rate on the curve. Now, there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, you know, going back again to that, that idea of giving lenders the ability to manage risk, you know, we've kind of already covered one area of that by giving them the ability to select which borrower they want to lend to and, and avoid those that they don't. But this 
dynamic interest rate and this particular utilization level ensures that in normal times, there's a buffer of liquidity that remains in the pool for lenders to withdraw. So lenders are never really locked into those pools. They can withdraw whenever they want from that, from that buffer of liquidity. So that's one thing. The second thing is that it gives the borrower the ability to either attract liquidity and grow the pool or to repel liquidity and, and decrease the size of the pool. So they can do that simply by setting the utilization. So if a borrower wants to, to grow the pool, they can perhaps go from 85, maybe up to sort of 87 or 88% utilization. That pool will then be paying a higher interest rate and should attract new lenders who are attracted by that higher rate. Likewise, if they want to decrease the size of the pool, they can simply you know, just repay. The utilization will go down. And that would mean a lower interest rate for lenders. And then lenders will withdraw their, their liquidity and place that with another borrower who's, who's optimizing or paying a higher rate. So the, the, this was the kind of the idea behind that mechanism. And that's worked very well. You know, that has now been thoroughly battle tested. We launched in March of last year. And yeah, shortly after we had Terra Luna collapse, we had then Three Arrows and, and all of the rest of it came after that, obviously culminating with FTX. But, but each time the protocol performed very well. As lenders want to withdraw liquidity, they're able to do so. This pushes the borrower into higher utilization and higher interest rates. They are then incentivized to repay. Sometimes the higher rate can still attract the lenders with higher risk appetite. So you can still see pools grow in, in that scenario. But usually in high times of volatility, borrowers will be incentivized to repay into the pool. And again, this allows lenders to withdraw as they wish. So, so we saw the mechanism working very well. But what was really encouraging, actually, is that after each of those events last year, our TVL reached new highs. Obviously, this mechanism means that the TVLs can be relatively volatile, I guess, you know, through these periods and not sort of constantly growing. But after each one, we hit a new high each time. Um, so this told us that lenders enjoyed this ability. You know, they were attracted by this ability to be able to access their liquidity very quickly. And we saw not just the TVL, but the number of lenders and you know, the average deposit and so on all uh, sort of increase. And those metrics you know, told us that we were on the right track and, and we, were, you know, we were growing as a lot of other sort of peer protocols, if you like, and DeFi in general actually declining. So in, that, in those months from, let's say, sort of June to, to October before FTX, we were hitting new highs in, in TVL quite, quite regularly. We had a number of new borrowers come throughout the year. And, and yeah, I think it was very, very encouraging to see how that played out, to see the protocol you know, working so well um, out in the wild, because of course, you know, there's, there's no way that we can intervene in anything. This is purely the behavior of, of borrowers and lenders and, and the smart contracts that sit in between them. A few things come to mind here. As one looks at just ecosystem that you're describing, and the theme that I keep as a former trader and portfolio manager in thinking about price discovery and thinking about how market forces are setting the price, the cost of money, the cost of borrowing and lending. And short of having a vibrant, healthy two-way market, DeFi has had to resort in creating ex-ante relatively prescriptive dynamics, model the dynamic and take a shot at what the dynamics of supply and demand are. When you talk about the curve and the liquidity function, your choice of a cosine base curve and certain parameters is prescriptive. It's ex ante. And what's interesting is I think ultimately the world is going to have to evolve similar to if you look at option trading, for example, you need to calibrate the ex-ante prescriptive model, the attempt to model reality, you need to calibrate it to where supply and demand is manifested out in the market. Um, and it's interesting that 
the protocol stood the test of the various volatility regimes that we've gone through in the last 18 months. It's a certainly a confirmation of the robustness of the ecosystem. But I wonder to what extent it is actually optimized in setting the right cost of capital depending on the supply and demand dynamics, right? And that's a broader question, but this is the one thing that jumps to mind. And I've been very interested to hear what the different teams in the market right now trying to solve for this and the way they're thinking about it, because they've had to go and really seek new solutions to a market that probably doesn't evolve at a stage of development where TratFi is. And so the concept of price discovery for the cost of money is elusive. You talked about your TVL and as a metric that you obviously observe and monitor. And it's interesting because you might think about a business model such as yours as being heavily transactional as well. So when you look at the trade-offs between accumulating assets into the borrowing pools versus monetizing those assets, how do you think about the business model? And have you thought about scalability on a going forward basis in order to achieve true growth and escape velocity for the business? Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good question. So the way that Clipple derives revenue is basically on those pools, we take a spread of the interest, which is generated on every block. Um, and that goes into an account within smart contracts um, and then ultimately is removed by the governor. And then we use revenue to, to essentially buy back uh, our token. And we have a burn mechanism. So revenue is, is directly related to the size of the pools, which you know, let's refer to that as TVL, and the interest rates that are being paid. So the revenue scales as the protocol grows. So that there's a direct relation there. Now, you hit on it on the right words there because we actually don't monitor TVL that much, but it is a metric that is widely used in, in DeFi. And, but on Clearpool, it's, it's a little bit sort of counterintuitive. When you have a market downturn, TVL would naturally go down. But also when this downturn is caused because of high volatility, risky events, that for Clearpool is actually a good thing. Although it means less revenue, it also means less risk. Right? So when you have these very volatile events, I think it's actually better to have less TVL and therefore less risk rather than looking to how, you know, to maintain TVL, um, but where you have risk building up in the system. And so that's kind of the way that we look at that. But then, you know, of course, these periods come and go. So the idea is that over time, the TVL continues to grow. And of course, that is a function of having more borrowers, more diversification of the type of borrowers that we have, which is a big theme for us now. And of course, more lenders, which right now is a big challenge for any project in this space. Liquidity is, is very thin. But but, but eventually that, that, of course, will come back. And we think that the way to continue to attract that and to, to keep that is through the, the sort of the innovation of making the product equally as attractive for lenders as it is for borrowers. So we're looking at further product innovation. Kind of moving back to, to your previous point before you asked this question, one of the things that we want to introduce or that we are bringing very soon is term pools. So we have this ability for borrowers to kind of almost set the price of funding through the utilization of the pool. But many times, you know, borrowers will need to have term liquidity. Now, that might be just seven-day liquidity. It might be 30-day. And the current version of the pools don't allow them to do that. Ultimately, if all of the lenders withdraw at once, the smart contract would then give them five days in order to bring the utility back below a certain level to avoid a default. So it's almost like an open-term facility or a very short-term money market facility. 
Um, so we're introducing term pools, which will allow the borrower to create a sub pool uh, with a fixed maturity date. And then the lenders within the main pool would then be able to lock their CP tokens. These are the sort of pool specific LP tokens into that sub pool. And then there'd be additional yield offered by the borrower uh, to be able to attract that term liquidity. Because of course, for the lenders, you know, there's additional risk there of locking up liquidity for a period of time. So I think, you know, two things here, or maybe even three. So first of all, it gives the borrower the ability to attract term liquidity. It gives lenders more optionality and, and more ability to get uh, additional yields. But the, the third thing is we can start to envisage um, kind of like a, a term structure of interest rates emerging on the back of on the back of these pools. That's very interesting because once you have that, then you can start to think about, you know, other products that can be built on top of this, this core layer, structured products and, and maybe even sort of you know, interest rate derivatives and stuff like that. So that's one product that we're, that we're building, you know, to ensure that we can you know, continue to grow and, and increase the revenue. The other one is, is a completely separate um, product, which is going to be launching soon, which is Clearpool Prime. Now, last year, we launched what we called a permissioned pool for, for Jane Street. They came to us, they, we had a conversation. They love what we were doing with the, the permissionless pools. But the problem with an institution like Jane is that they need to know who their lenders are. They wouldn't have been able to launch a pool and, and then have this sort of like decentralized anonymous network of lenders. So we built a very sort of basic uh, solution for that, which we called permissioned pool. And effectively, this is where, you know, you have KYC lenders that are permissioned to be the only lenders into that pool. So we launched a pool with, with Jane, blocked out with the lender into that pool. And then we got a lot of interest in that on the back of that. So we, we spoke with many other institutions that, you know, were kind of looking to get into this space, but had the same problem. Um, so, um, so we decided to go ahead and build you know, a product solution for that. So that's Clearpool Prime. Um, so this is a basically a KYB AML compliant um, protocol for uh, for institutions. So institutions that want to operate in Prime can can go through this KYB process. And they get whitelisted. Once you're in Prime, you can act as either a borrower or a lender. Borrowers would have the ability to launch a pool, and these these pools will have fixed fixed uh, durations, fixed interest rate, fixed size. Um, and multi-asset support. Um, and then, so once they've set those parameters, they can then select from all of the other permission participants who they want to face. Right? So they could either select the entire list or, or they can select a subset. And then those guys would then receive a notification, like an RFQ notification, informing this pool has been launched. This is the borrower. These are the terms and effectively inviting them to fund it. Um, so that's the first version of, of Clearpool Prime, um, which is like the evolution of, of permission pools. Um, so we've got a number of institutions actually, you know, very interested in using this, and uh, it's it's non-custodial as well, so it mitigates you know other concerns that some of the bigger sort of more traditional um, institutions have, you know, when it comes to dealing in DeFi. And you know, we're already thinking about you know the next generation of that product. You know, what's, what 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 other functionality should we should we add? And um, collateral is is something that we're also thinking about here as well. So yeah, and this this really you know, this this product I think is where we can see potentially you know much bigger bigger tickets sizes. So, you know, that, that alone with Jane Street was $50 million. I think the type of institutions that, that will use this, perhaps not right now because of the, the state of the market, but, you know, once we get back to normality, you can see those, those bigger ticket deals going through here, and this will generate much bigger revenues. All of that will accrue to the products, stakeholders and token holders in, in the same way as it does on the permission pools. So do you envision a world, I mean, this is very relevant to as we were recording, there is a brewing banking crisis in the U.S. and arguably in other parts of the world where the duration shock induced by the very rapid pace of Federal Reserve rate hikes and ECB have impaired the capital base at banks, right? creating a crisis of confidence 
that has led depositors to flee, as we know, and banks having to generate liquidity in order to meet those withdrawals and going into the spiral of a bank run at the institutional level, but also at the retail level. So if I fast forward, do you envision the products that you are working on as potential solutions to the problems that we're seeing? Certainly far from me implying that you would solve the broader situation that we find ourselves in from a monetary and and fiscal policy standpoint, because that would be uh, too big of an undertaking. But from the standpoint of making a market, creating an infrastructure that allows participants looking for capital and participants looking to lend capital at a price that is being assessed by participants and market forces really setting the cost of capital, do you envision that the infrastructure that you've built will allow a variety of participants to source liquidity at a cost in a way that diversifies the participants that are getting involved in lending money in there? In other words, does it open gates beyond the institutional market that we see today and whether there are institutional lenders or retail lenders? Is that part of your vision to expand the universe of participants? Absolutely. I think it's the technology, the benefits that it provides. We can talk about the efficiencies, the transparency, the cost effectiveness. All of these things are kind of obvious, but we still have this challenge of getting there. I think the way that we look at it is that money is becoming more digital in nature. And, and eventually, you know, we think that all debt will be originated on chain in whatever format. Now that there are hurdles to get to that point, and of course, right now, majority of institutions uh, that issue debt, they don't do so in, in fiat currency, and that's what they need uh, to operate their businesses and so on. But ultimately, that currency is going to change, and it's going to be originated on chain. So that's when you'll see the technology that's being built now and the innovation really start to take off. So yeah, we do definitely look at it that way, and we do envision a future where also it goes beyond institutions. I think already we've kind of had ideas about how we could build something similar where you could have retail individual borrowers. And you know, things like when people start to get paid in, in digital assets, it becomes much easier to prove your salary, if you like, or you know, your, the income, because it would be programmed into a smart contract and it's probably being streamed to you every block rather than you're being paid in one lump sum at the end of the month. So that could then be a a stepping stone towards um, allowing people to sort of borrow on the back of that. And this kind of like, you know, makes these sort of payday loans much easier and much safer and more efficient, more transparent for, for people looking to, you know, to borrow small amounts of money in, in between sort of paychecks, if you like. Also, you'd have potentially millions, hundreds of millions, even billions of, of lenders, right? So you have much smaller lenders in a bigger pool, which, uh, you know, somebody's borrowing from. And, and this, of course, means that it's very well diversified. And you know, any sort of NPLs can, can probably be absorbed relatively easy. And then things like you know, on-chain, the ability to sort of you know, build an on-chain credit score uh, will, will evolve over time as well as, as this all plays out. So we definitely see that and definitely working towards all that. Right now, our focus is more on institutions because you know, that's, these are the guys that are sort of operating this space. And that's where I think people are comfortable. But ultimately, I, I do see the technology evolving and the innovation evolving to a stage where you know where we see that for sure one question that comes to mind and 
I've certainly looked at other participants in your space and I've asked them the same question as to how do they think about reputational risk as it relates to the quality of the borrowers and the performance of the borrowing pools? In other words, can you abstract yourself and take the stance that you are an enabler in a platform, even if borrowers are defaulting or credit quality oscillates to the downside? Or do you project it to be very much a reputational issue if the quality of the credit and its performance, both again at the money market level and a wholesale funding type trading, as well as more longer term term loan investment into RWAs? How do you think about credit quality and how tied you think your business is to the performance of those pools? This is a great question. We have so many conversations with partners, with investors, with really you know, everyone that we engage with. We always get onto this subject. So one of the things that we wanted to make sure that we weren't doing on Clearpool was, was underwriting. We do believe that you know, this is something that should be done by lenders, but we wanted to make sure that we were providing them with a way of at least beginning that process and, and being able to compare lenders and this idea of, of credit quality or credit worthiness. So we partner with, with another project, which is Credora, who provide credit ratings for you know, certain types of on-chain businesses, mainly you know, trading firms and, and hedge funds, market makers, the, the type of borrowers that we've already been working with. And they have an approach whereby if the credit quality you know, deteriorates, you know, they can see that in, I would say, near real time, and therefore the, the credit rating should adapt accordingly. So you know, lenders are well informed as that change happens. So that, I think, is an area that, is, that will evolve as more credit data is, can be found on chain, can be scraped from the blockchain. So we look at it that way. So we want to make sure that the borrowers have to go through a process. They have to you know, basically prove themselves and verify themselves through that process, get this credit rating. Eventually, we would probably then, you know, once they've gone through that and obtained a credit rating above a certain level, they would then probably, at the moment, at this point in time, they, they would, you know, we would launch the pool. And we do see a future where perhaps that would then go to a government's vote, you know, where then the community would actually take the final decision, can they launch the pool or not, so that the entire process can be more decentralized. But once you have that, then, of course, you've got lenders, you know, making the decisions who they want to lend to. You've got the credit scoring, you know, giving them some ability to see the risk in real time. And then you've got the lenders who, uh, sorry, the borrowers who are effectively very incentivized here to, to build their credit rating, their credit history and their credit profile on chain. So... In terms of Clearpool, you know, we're building the infrastructure that can put all of this together. So we feel like the reputational risk is less because we don't take on that underwriting element, but we have to get that onboarding, that process of new borrowers entering the ecosystem right. And this is something that we've taken very sort of slowly to begin with. You know, we didn't want to accelerate our opening pools for multiple different types of, of companies. A, you know, for, for the reason of just sort of like being a little bit cautious, but B, because the ability to actually rate the creditworthiness of different institutions is, is just not there yet. So Equidora do have this sort of niche speciality with trading firms. They are we're working with them, try to expand you know, to, to other borrowed profiles. But if let's say, you know, we have a Bitcoin miner or a custodian or an exchange or some other on-chain or digital asset firm looking to borrow, we need to make sure that that process is robust and that the, the credit score that they obtain is adaptable and, and viewable in real time. And then beyond that, even more so, right? So if we do start to see more sort of traditional corporates or financial institutions or even commercial ventures looking to borrow through, through Clearpool, that process has to be uh, solid. And I think uh, this is 
early days for credit on chain. And I think there's still a lot of, you know, there's, there's still a lot of data that you would want to see that's, that's not available on chain. So, you know, th- that's uh, an area that we actually focus a lot on because we do believe that this is very key to Clipple's uh, growth and success. In terms of the future, we are looking at an ecosystem that is highly dependent on stable coins. Stable coins are the currency of exchange in creating this base layer of digital money market. My first question is, do you agree with that statement? And secondly, what are your views on the adoption and institutionalization of stable coins in a way that is robust? As we have seen in recent events with the current banking crisis that we find ourselves in is following the bankruptcy or insolvency of Silicon Valley Bank, disclosures were made as to depositors and large depositors that had a claim and had assets that were stuck with the bank prior to the FDIC stepping in and the Federal Reserve essentially creating a facility to backstop and provide liquidity for depositors over the insured amount. But what we did see over the weekend that the crisis uh, was unfolding was that the USDC stablecoin depegged. And the reason for that was that part of the cash reserves that are backing USDC um, in its collateralization scheme were stuck with Silicon Valley Bank. And there was a concentration risk there. So I think it really opened up a debate and there was the the crypto Twitter space and and the press as a whole was very active on the debate of whether this was a sign that the architecture was unsound. And there were certainly some defenders as well. Ironically, the beneficiary of this was USDT offshore, obviously with its own set of issues around transparency. So I was wondering if you could comment and I'd also, my third question, which is, in terms of a roadmap for stable coins, do you foresee governments essentially creating a digital representation of their currencies and backstopping those currencies, in which case you'd essentially be facing the good faith and credit of the U.S. government? Or do you see them partnering with an existing vendor that's achieved critical mass, such as a circle, to achieve those goals? So taking that one first, I mean, I'd like to think they would partner with an existing issuer. The stablecoins have an incredible product market fit. They are the almost like the oil of crypto markets. Everybody is very easy to understand them, and everybody uses stablecoins at some point in their crypto journey. The problem with it is, you know, you've already touched on it really, is that they they rely on traditional market infrastructure, and they rely on fiat currency or their representation of fiat currency in a way you know, all of that goes against the ethos of you know, decentralization and digital assets. So with that said, I think as long as we have government-issued fiat currency, stablecoins you know, can exist as a digital version of that. And as I said, you know, I'd like to think that governments would partner with existing issuers. I think the main thing here is to set a framework around you know, how they are issued, how the, the assets that back them are stored and, and so on. So I think that's what is lacking. And it seems at the moment, certainly with what's happening in the US and with the US banks right now, as you've alluded to, you know, it certainly feels like that framework is not sort of forthcoming there. But having said that, there are other jurisdictions around the world where the framework for stablecoins is being developed by regulators. And you know, I live in the UAE. We have a very friendly regulator here in terms of digital assets. 
they're certainly looking at this. I know they're also looking at uh, issuing a digital dirham, which is the local currency. And I know that uh, Hong Kong have recently announced they're going to be working on a framework for stablecoins. So I think we have to wait and see what that might look like. But also we have to wait and see uh, what does a central bank digital currency look like? You know, is that, does that live in parallel with the, the sort of thing that, that is similar to you know, the, what we have right now? Or do we move entirely to a digital format? Is it going to be on public blockchain? There are so many questions around this, and some of them fill me with fear. But I do believe that ultimately, although they kind of represent old money right now, I think stablecoins are are a good thing, and they do make the market work more efficiently. And I just hope that they can be. I really hope that we can see some framework from regulators that, that allows the stablecoin market to flourish. It is a thorny topic. And certainly one that is highly complex because it's essentially, if you look at stable coins, they're a necessary transition period that's bridging the fiat world into the digital world and doing so in a numeraire that is commonly accepted as the reserve currency of the world, really. And sort of this digitization and on a global basis, dollarization through digital means. With all the weaknesses and the trappings that we've alluded to, one being that the irony, if you think about the ethos of censorship resistance of crypto in its foundation, and where we're heading into a world where we actually have utmost transparency over transactions, over certainly if you start throwing in KYC and AML, high level of visibility that will give governments a tremendous amount of control and oversight over private transactions. And if you think about it today, it's going to add a layer of control that did not exist before. So not to say that I have all the answers, but I certainly can raise some of the key questions around the need to balance adoption and institutionalization, which oftentimes has to come through sanctioning by governments with the fact that it ultimately will hand over a tremendous amount of control to governments and regulators over private enterprise, private information, and just business privacy as a whole. So it's a very interesting topic. And when it comes to regulation, clearly we don't have an appetite, especially in Washington right now, to solve for strategic issues around this topic. If anything, given the narrative, which I believe is wrong and misleading, that crypto was the trigger and caused the current banking crisis, which is a fallacy. The banking crisis was caused by mismanaged duration risk at banks. And certainly some institutions were involved with crypto and it might have affected their deposit base, which might have highlighted the problem with their duration risk management, but crypto did not cause that. Unfortunately, the perception is going to be mixed and if you combine that with the fact that as a whole, as an ecosystem, crypto is still very small and hence the opportunity that lies ahead is very large if one extrapolates in the future. But currently, there is no sense of urgency. Is it your sense that you will see a bifurcation from a regulatory standpoint and adoption, which then ties into technology and product development away from the US? Yourself, you're in Dubai. You've been in these more, I would say, at least from the standpoint of digital assets, more progressive jurisdictions that are seeing this as an opportunity to leapfrog the more traditional 
well-established financial markets and their regulatory frameworks of the US, the UK, the EU. Do you foresee a bifurcation in the coming years? That may be a short-term one. I think, you know, because certainly looks that way right now. But having said that, you know, we, we don't know what regulators are working on behind closed doors. We just, there's really been no guidance. So it's, it's really hard to understand, you know, how they think about this. But what has happened recently, you know, would certainly um, suggest that, you know, they're not looking at it particularly, particularly well. So I think that could happen in the short term, but ultimately for stable coins and their use cases in DeFi and digital assets in general, for these things to be successful and grow and to become that future of finance, it needs to have all of those participants that are regulated in the main jurisdictions like in the US and in Europe and so on. So I think you might see that element of perhaps other jurisdictions, you know, in the short to medium term, taking advantage of the fact that we have a lack of guidance from the US, for example, play out. But I think over time, probably we get to the point where that's not the case or, or, or maybe then, you know, they set the standards for the regulators to follow. Because I certainly think that the majority of people in the US uh, would not like the US to fall behind uh, in terms of digital asset innovation. And I'm sure they don't either. So I think maybe it's just, it's such a, a large undertaking. It's just going to take some time. But whatever happens, you know, people in this space, they will find a way. Now, that's one thing that uh, they always see, whatever is thrown at us, whatever is the, the challenge, you know, the builders and, and the people that are in this space rise up to it and find a way. So I'm still very encouraged from what I see and, and still um, have that very sort of bullish long-term view. So as we come to an initial conclusion here in this conversation, which I very much enjoyed, one of the remaining questions that I have is we've talked about sort of long-term perspective. You've talked about product roadmap and what you're trying to solve for in the near term, let's say 2023. How do you set specific objectives and how do you align yourselves and your stakeholders to achieve those objectives? And what are those goals? Let's say if you looked at 2023 and 2024, what are concrete objectives that you're trying to hit that would make you look back and say, you know what, it's a tough environment out there. We're in the midst of a global macro bear market, but here's how we'd like to come out of this phase. And what defines that in terms of both tangible and intangible metrics? So one of the biggest things for us this year is we wanted to focus on diversifying the type of borrowers that we have on Clearpool. And so that obviously does rely on, on the market somewhat. And on other things as well, we already touched on the ability to give a credit rating to certain types of other borrower profiles. So those things that we're working on, and we believe that you know, regardless of the market where it is, that is something that would need to happen. So that kind of will happen you know, regardless of what happens in the market. That's something that is a big focus for us. The other thing is, is just product sophistication. We know that you know, we have a product that performed very well, and we have this base layer uh, that works. And now we want to continue to innovate around and, and on top of that. And so we're already launching Liverpool Prime next month. Also, we have these other products like the, the term pools. We have a product that will allow lenders to diversify liquidity in a single click. And then we're looking at also creating a secondary market for, for LP tokens, whether those tokens are from a main pool or a sub pool or from a diversified pool. We want to start to think about introducing the ability to, to trade those tokens on a secondary market, which then gives, gives more data on where the market is pricing risk. And then also that allows for the next stage of innovation, which is things like uh, you know, credit derivatives, interest rate derivatives, and, and other optionality for lenders you know, to manage risk. So we think once you have that level of sophistication, it also makes it easier for sort of more institutional players to enter this space. And 
this is where the growth is going to come from. If DeFi is going to become the future of finance, then of course, you know, we have to attract those institutions. I know there are people in, in crypto that prefer not to see you know, institutional adoption. I think it's probably is more relevant to, to things like you know, Bitcoin and so on. But I think when it comes to DeFi, that's where the growth is going to come from. And we need to attract that. We need to have product sophistication. So you know, we have that at the base layer with what we've built, but now we need to continue to innovate and to ensure that a, an institution that has the risk appetite to lend on chain to whatever borrowers we have, you know, also has the ability to satisfy the risk team that they are, their ability to hedge their exposures are available to them, for example. So that's our focus is continuing to innovate on the product side, but also when we're thinking about you know, scalability and you know, different borrower profiles high on the list. That sounds like an ambitious yet necessary optic on what it's going to take to succeed. I think it's very important for players such as yourselves to really lay a good, solid, robust foundation for what will be the money market layer and eventually the credit layer on-chain. And there's certainly competing views and approaches out there. What I respect in your case is the strong domain expertise and clearly knowing what you're doing as it relates to the world of TretFi, in which you evolved and you and your colleagues and co-founders evolved for a long time. So I'm hopeful that having leaders in the industry who are very focused on what is an essential plumbing, which was overlooked, I think, for a long time within the crypto space, because you had the emergence of these centralized players that we also saw failing last year because of leverage, because of poor risk management again. What I'd like to see certainly is a more robust approach to creating the rails, the infrastructure for modern financial markets. And I think the current crisis, again, on the banking side, I actually think is very supportive of that thesis. We have it in us. We have the technology. We have the insights to start thinking about what is the architecture for banking, for money market, for credit markets, and how can we solve for some of the pitfalls and the shortcomings that we've observed and the trappings that we continue to fall into. So I want to thank you very much for being one of those leaders and taking on the charge of trying to chart a path forward for being a trailblazer, really, in trying to establish new concepts, new approaches, and along the way, figuring out what is the optimal approach to some of these immediate needs that we're seeing both in crypto native space, as well as to bring on new retail and institutional players onto the platform. So thank you very much for joining the podcast today. I've enjoyed the conversation and I look forward to seeing the progress over the next few months and years. Thank you very much, Maxime. It's been my pleasure. This podcast is produced by Rado Venture Management LLC, RVM. RVM is not an investment advisor. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of any entities they represent not investment advice.